I've worked in the government now, the federal government now, for nearly three years. I know what the deep state looks like. I know the difference between a whistleblower and a deep state operative. This is a deep state operative, pure and simple. That was White House aide Stephen Miller describing the CIA whistleblower who exposed President Trump's phone call to Ukrainian President Zelensky. What exactly does he mean by the deep state? Where does the concept come from? And can the deep state attack line help Trump fend off the growing threat of impeachment? We'll talk with the author of a new book called Deep State about Trump and the FBI, and we'll dissect Russian disinformation and conspiracy theories with a former top State Department official whose job was to combat it. All that and more on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So no shortage of stuff to talk about. but I, Don't we I, say that every week? Yeah, well, you know, it does get <laughs> crazier and crazier as the impeachment momentum only seems to grow. We just got the Fox News poll of that support for impeachment is up to 51%, more than half the country. This is a Fox News poll. That suggests we may be close if we're not already at the tipping point where impeachment is inevitable and acquittal in the Senate not so certain. Yeah, I think that is an important uh, moment. Imagine if you are a you know, a Fox News watcher. And, you know, that's where you get all your news from. And so all of this impeachment stuff is it's all fake news, right? It's all, you know, deep state bullshit. Um, and then all of a sudden you, you, you look at Fox, you look at the, their website and the lead story on the site is a Fox poll. Right. Not a fake news poll, but a Fox poll saying 51 percent of Americans support um, impeachment. Right. That's a big that. I think it was 51 percent supporting impeachment inquiry. But, uh, you know, that is a a, a pretty high and dramatic number. By the way, uh, Trump did take to to uh, Twitter uh, after that poll appeared and trashed the pollster, whoever. He didn't know who the pollster was, but he trashed the pollster. Right, right. Well, look, uh, all that fits under uh, the theme of uh, I mean, two of the themes we're going to be talking about today, the concept of a deep state and also um, the uh, disinformation and how it works. But before we get to that, I think we got to deal with the breaking news of the day, which is the indictment of two of Rudy Giuliani's associates, Lev uh, clients, Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman, 
They were arrested at Tullus Airport Wednesday night, indicted today on $325,000 in illegal campaign contributions uh, through a phony company they set up uh, to make the contributions. So it was a straw donor deal. There was also, and I do love this, uh, as part of the indictment, they were also planning to form a recreational marijuana business that would be funded by a foreign national and plotting to use foreign contributions from this foreign national to gain access to retail marijuana licenses in particular states. Now, we're all on this uh, on Skullduggery for recreational marijuana licenses in the, in uh, throughout the country. We don't think they should be funded uh, by foreign nationals or at least the uh, getting the licenses for them. But Rudy decides He's going to counterattack. But hold on. on. We just before well, we get to that. Yeah. I mean the irony, you just gotta pause for a moment, because the irony yeah. is so rich. Lev Parnas, this is the guy who Rudy has pointed out to as the guy who came to him and put him on to the Hunter Biden corruption scandal. Corruption Ukrainian in Ukraine. corruption right. in the Ukraine. Right. Uh, and you know, he's touted this guy as a credible source uh, and someone who had good information. And he's now been indicted for corruption. <laughs> he's, so he's, he's got to savor the himself. moment. So corruption anywhere <laughs> and everywhere. It is delicious. But, but yes, but 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 Rudy has pushed back. Right. This is the Rudy counterattack. I'm going to read this because it's breaking news. He tweets, breaking news, this email exchange between Ali Chalupa, Peren consultant for the DNC, close paren, and Luis Miranda, comms director for the DNC, dated 5-3-16 as one of the many instances providing collusion, proving collusion between Ukrainian officials and DNC Clinton campaign. Who, Mike Isakoff, is Ali Chalupa, and what in the world <laughs> is Rudy Giuliani talking about? Okay, so here is the email. Let's dissect the email, which, by the way, I should point out, was um, one of those uh, emails that uh, the Russians got in their uh, in the GRU hack of the DNC and then gave to WikiLeaks. So it was put out there by WikiLeaks on the eve of the Democratic Convention. And the first person to notice it and write about it was moi. <laughs> right. Um, in part because I'm named in this email. So let's read the email. A lot more coming down the pike. This is Chalupa, a DNC contractor who I was in touch with, who was telling me all sorts of stuff about Paul Manafort's uh, unsavory deals working for Yanukovych, the pro-Russian president in uh, Ukraine. A lot more coming down the pike. I spoke to a delegation of 68 investigative journalists from Ukraine last Wednesday at the Library of Congress, and I invited Michael Isakoff, who I've been working with for the past few weeks, and connected him to the Ukrainians. That is true. I was talking to Ali Chalupa. I quoted her in stories for Yahoo News, uh, wrote about the hack of her uh, Yahoo accounts, and uh, she did connect me to Ukrainian journalists. Uh, She invited me to a uh, talk they were giving and a reception at the Ukrainian embassy in which I got a chance to talk to some Ukrainian investigative journalists. Right, so you were colluding with foreign journalists from Ukraine? There you go. And by the Uh, way, she is Ukrainian-American, right? She's a Ukrainian-American, and uh, this is the evidence that Rudy Giuliani is citing of 
collusion. Um, now, another word for it might be called reporting, <laughs> um, talking to journalists. It never dawned on me that there was anything the least bit suspicious uh, about it. And by the way, if they told me about information that Ukrainian officials might have about Paul Manafort, I would have been more than happy to um, pursue that and um, and write about it. Alas, no Ukrainian officials actually gave me information on this, but I was happy to talk to journalists. But this is Rudy Giuliani's idea of, I guess, a defense to uh, these uh, charges about his uh, sleazy clients who are making uh, illegal campaign contributions. I think we need uh, to get Rudy on the show to make yes. his case. Yes. You're right in front of you. Rudy, you are invited uh, hereby uh, to come on Skullduggery, and we can explore this further. But there's a lot more to explore uh, uh, in the um, the growing impeachment mess in Washington and the uh, walls closing in on the president, a phrase we've used before. But it does feel uh, different this time. Um, we had we thought we were going to get, or at least take note, that the a key witness— in, about that uh, uh, Ukrainian phone call and the events that led up to it was scheduled to be deposed by the House Intelligence Committee and the two other committees investigating this uh, on Tuesday at 12.30 a.m. Tuesday morning, Gordon Sondland, who was the uh, ambassador, who is the ambassador to the European Union, who was scheduled to be deposed. His lawyer gets a phone call from the State Department telling him he cannot testify, that the State Department is barring him from doing so. And uh, as a result, at the last minute, this very key deposition was canceled. Adam Schiff uh, immediately said this would be an instance of uh, for another instance of obstruction. I should point out, I found out about the midnight phone call uh, by a phone call I made to one Robert Luskin, who was Gordon Sunland's uh, lawyer. Uh, uh, Clyman here is laughing because uh, uh, Luskin and I go way back when we were uh, hot on the trail of the um, Scooter Libby case and the indictments uh, that uh, and the investigation by Patrick Fitzgerald. Uh, Luskin was the lawyer for Karl Rove. So the first thing I said to Luskin when I got him on the phone Tuesday morning was, you know, uh, Bob, I don't think a scandal in Washington would be complete if I wasn't talking to you. And he kind of laughed about that. Well, I think we could say that a scandal in Washington would not be complete if you didn't pop up in some way as a character. Yes, in it. and I do seem to have a <laughs> habit of just popping up. I, I, I want to mention one other uh, story uh, that we actually just broke on uh, Yahoo News. Hunter uh, Walker, intrepid reporter in the Washington Bureau, uh, he was talking to uh, Victoria Tunsing, who is a staunch defender of the president's, has been on and off his legal team, um, mm -hmm. defender on Fox News. Her husband is Joe DeGeneva. Joe DeGeneva. Mm -hmm. Very, they're all very close to Rudy Giuliani. Hunter was talking to Victoria Tunsing, and she, he mentioned to her that uh, the Trump legal team had just hired Trey Gowdy, the uh, former South Carolina Republican uh, congressman who who was on the Benghazi investigation. He was leading the charge, the charge on Benghazi. On Benghazi. Right. And Hunter told uh, Tunsing that uh, they, you know, what do you, what was, what's your reaction to to their hiring uh, Trey Gowdy? Mm -hmm. And she said, and I quote, this is from the Yahoo News story: Trey Gowdy doesn't know shit. <laughs> 
<laughs> and then she went on to say he screwed up the Benghazi hearings and he came out with the advice to Trump, well, if you've done nothing wrong, just talk to Bob mm-hmm. Mueller. Mm-hmm. So she doesn't have a lot of respect for uh, for Trey Gowdy. A little surprising that she would be out there on the, on the record trashing Donald Trump's uh, newest um, legal advisor. But there you have it right, in right. Yahoo News. Well, uh, so uh, he doesn't know shit. This is from one of Trump's staunchest defenders on Fox News talking about the new lawyer Trump has just hired. It does make me think of the uh, book our colleague Alex Nazarian wrote. What, what was it? Only the best. <laughs> the very best people. <laughs> the, the very best. The, the very best. best. Trump's, yeah. Uh, yeah, but so, it does make you wonder uh, what kind of term there is inside the uh, Trump uh, legal defense team. Right. As though there is any kind of uh, strategy at all other than to um, stonewall and uh, attack the accusers. Anyway, lots to talk about with our guests. So let's get right to it. We are now joined by Richard Stengel, the former Undersecretary of State for Public Diplomacy and the author of Information Wars, How We Lost the Global Battle Against Disinformation and What We Can and, Do About It. And don't forget our very worthy competitor when we were in the News <laughs> yes, Magazine business. Yes, for many years, editor of Time Magazine. Clydeman and I were at Newsweek, Stengel was the editor of... Time Magazine, our competitor. Brand X, as we call them. And I think you <laughs> right. called us we, Brand X. We called you Brand X, too. <laughs> well, we, we stole everything from Time. <laughs> um, anyway, Richard, welcome to Skullduggery. Great to be here with you guys. Okay, so, you know, the book is fascinating. There's so much to talk about. But I think it's interesting to start out with, you know, when you were in this job dealing with disinformation and um, all its impacts around the world, you started out with what was going on in Ukraine and Russian disinformation in Ukraine. And I got to say, it does seem like the impeachment saga we're experiencing right now is in many ways an outgrowth of the whole Russian-Ukrainian dispute. Yes, it's sort of come full circle. What what happened was I went into office in... uh, February of 2014, and a couple of weeks later was Putin's annexation of Crimea, which was the biggest land grab pretty much since World War II, violating the sovereignty of Ukraine. It's funny that Crimea was actually given back to Ukraine in 1954, I think, by Nikita Khrushchev, which Putin thought was a terrible mistake. Uh, But he wanted to rectify it, and he basically invaded Crimea, took it over. They had this kind of illegal referendum. And, you know, I can't really, you know, the government then sanctioned Russia. I can't, I couldn't do sanctions. I obviously don't have any guns or weapons. I thought, well, I'm I'm the media communications guy. I can tweet about it and try to get other people to tweet about it. And, you know, the State Department is a reticent place. I wasn't very successful in getting other people to tweet about it. But as soon as I started tweeting about it, I started hearing instantly from folks with Russian sounding names saying I was a hypocrite and I was a liar and I was a propagandist and and the you know the the protesters in Maidan are are Nazis they're funded by America and I thought whoa where did this all come from I mean we've mm-hmm. all been in media our mm-hmm. whole lives I, I I didn't even I didn't even know anything about this I didn't even know what RT was and so I started monitoring it and we started seeing it I talked to our fantastic then ambassador in Ukraine a guy named Jeff Pyatt who was mm-hmm. all over uh, social media. And 
And I started to get a sense of this kind of tsunami of Russian stuff. And it wasn't for the U.S. particularly. It was for the Russian periphery. It was for the Baltics. It was for to scare people and to give that, that Putin line. And so I started to tweet about it. And I, we started this one group in government. It was called the Ukraine Task Force. And it was a right. bunch of people you know, who were savvy about social media and were Russian speakers. And and we started we started doing some stuff. And, you know, Ukraine is a is a wonderful place. I mean, it, I went three times when I was in office. It's a critical place to the future of Europe and democracy. It's a country the size of France in Europe. It's this hinge point between East and West, between Russia and Western Europe. And it's had more losses from World War One, World War Two, the, the Holomador, which is the the forced Russian famine in the in the like nineteen thirties in the thirties Stalin and the Kulaks ten, right. ten million yeah. people it's a star crossed place but it's a it's a lovely place and they're soulful people and what's kind of ironic in a sad way is now how it's come back into the news because our whole focus was to make Ukraine lean west towards Europe uh, and not east towards Russia and the other irony is. What were those protests about? Those protests were about Yanukovych, you know, the crony who was there, rescinding a treaty that would have made them closer to, e- to the right. EU. Right. So the irony is we have this knuckleheaded ambassador to the EU, <laughs> and Ukraine isn't even part of the EU, and he's yeah. part of this conspiracy to right. get Ukraine to investigate Biden in exchange for this, you know, funding. Right. Now, the Trump administration, to their credit, actually started giving money for defensive military operations, which we in the Obama administration never did. But we were so focused on a free and independent Ukraine that would be part of Europe, which is a really important thing for, you know, for the globe. And I should point out that, you know, when you read the transcript, the rough transcript of the phone call that Trump has with Zelensky, the new president of Ukraine, I mean, he's spouting, first of all, there is the question of the military aid, which has been suspended, which was military aid, including these, you know, funding for Javelin anti-tank missiles to fight Russian aggression in Ukraine, exactly. the very uh, uh, aggression that you, you know, that started you on this path. And then he's spouting these conspiracy theories about how it was really the Ukrainians who had interfered in the 2016 election, not the Russians. And, uh, you know, and the, the server. And the, uh, the, May actually be in Ukraine. We in hear you Ukraine. have a lot of rich people I mean, there. Did this strike you as I don't, not 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 that I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but did, did you see a parallel between what Trump was saying and the kind of Russian disinformation that they've put out about their involvement in Ukraine? Absolutely. I mean, one of the stories I tell in the book is I think it was my first trip to Ukraine in uh, in the end of 2014 or so, and. It really was about how do we help them message against the Russians. And I went, and in Kiev, I met with this the young new, this is after Yanukovych left, the young new information minister. And I said, look, you know, there's this, uh, you know, eruption of Russian stuff. I know it, it's, it's damaging to you guys. You know, how can we help? And he said to me, what is a press release? <laughs> wow. And he said, what's the difference between on the record and off the record? And I mean, as I say, I love the Ukrainians. They were hapless and hopeless. I mean, they, they were so unsophisticated about modern media. The idea that somehow interference was coming from Ukraine against the 2016 election seems preposterous to me. 
and and another kind of a, you know Russian whataboutism to say you know we're not responsible look over here and get people to look there but uh, the you know the Ukrainians weren't good at this stuff and and we helped support some indigenous Ukrainian groups that were trying to you know get their their message out there but again it seems super unlikely to me and meanwhile someone like yourself who has been in the world of information for your whole career as a, a, a journalist, as a, a magazine editor, and then in the government, having the levers of, of the government at your disposal to fight this uh, kind of unconventional warfare that the Russians and others been launching at us, you still had huge challenges. We still weren't really prepared for that kind of onslaught of information warfare. So I want to just back up for a second. How did we get here? What happened so that information has, and disinformation, has become in some ways the most potent form of warfare out there. And what do we, and we'll get to what we do about it later, because I know that's... A- okay. But you know, Dan, the, your question, though, put me in mind of, what, of where we started with the Time versus Newsweek thing, because when I went into government, a lot of people said to me, wow, why, why are you doing this? Uh, these are people in government. And, you know, you came from this big international organization with a big budget, and now you have this undersecretary job at the State Department. So you know what my budget was, the the Public Diplomacy Public Affairs annual budget at the State Department? $1.1 billion a year. My time budget, which was a lot bigger than your Newsweek budget, (laughs) was like $80 million a year. People in government had no sense. People in government have no sense of how big government is and how much money they have. I mean, it's a colossal amount of money. Now, could I authorize all that $1.1 billion? No. Was 95% of it accounted for and with congressional funding? Yes. But even the amount of money that I had to use- Even the discretionary money. Was way more money than we ever had at, at Time or Newsweek. That's for sure. So how did we get here? You know, What is the kind of origin of, of the global information war? I mean, again, as you know, Mike, the- Russians have been practicing active measures for 50, 75 years. That was disinformation. But in the old days, what they had to do was like pay off a journalist in Bangalore to publish a, you know, canard in the Bangalore Times. And then what they would do is pick it up in their own Russian media in TASS or whatever and get it out there in the main bloodstream. The difference now is there's no barrier to entry with with social media that the, you know, the Internet Research Agency in in St. Petersburg is, you know, Four or five hundred trolls that are paid all day long to to put content, some true, some false, some made up, on Twitter or Facebook or Vkontakte, which is the Russian uh, version of Facebook. The difference is the the delivery system has changed, and it's just made it more potent, and it's allowed them to find audiences that they couldn't have found before because on social media there's no intermediaries. I mean, you find the stuff that you're interested in. I mean, so again, you know, if you happen to think it's possible that Hillary Clinton started a child sex trafficking ring out of a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C., you're going to be able to find Mm -hmm. that information and they're going to be able to find you. That's why it's so much more potent. And then there's the hard end of it, you know, uh, uh, spear phishing, malware, uh, cyber attacks. I mean, the, the, the scale of that is crazy. I mean, I saw a story the other day, the Pentagon estimated and I think this is like 2017, they were attacked 130 million times, the Pentagon servers, in one year. The State Department servers were, were attacked tens of thousands of times a day. So it's on this continuum be, sort of between kind of hard cyber war and soft cyber war, which is disinformation. 
You mentioned the Internet Research Agency, and you know you talk about how this was on your radar screen when you're dealing with their the Russian disinformation in Ukraine. But what always intrigued me uh, when I was doing the reporting for Russian Roulette is that while the Internet Research Agency was its existence was known. It had been reported about in the Ukraine in the Russian press, independent Russian press. It had been the subject of a cover New York Times magazine piece in 2015. But while its operations were unfolding in 2016 and they were buying all these phony Facebook ads and Twitter accounts with rubles, a major part of the Russian attack on the election, it seems that the U.S government was clueless. We didn't learn about that until after the election. There was no whistles being blown by you at the State Department or others in the Obama administration. And, you know, I guess my basic question is, how did you miss it? It's a good question, and it's a fair one, because I have to say, in 2015, 2016, I learned much more about it from what they call at the State Department open source reporting, not not through intelligence. And and I, I can't speak for the intelligence community or the Defense Department, but for me at the State Department, and I was the most, I was the person most on, on top of this. It was new to me, and I learned about it from mainly from open source reporting. I then got a little bit more information from the State Department, but not about what they were doing in the United States no. at that time. No, I mean our awareness of it was more focused around Ukraine and what they did in the periphery and the Baltics, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, I mean, how much of a leap was it? I mean, because the the Russians had which Baltic country did they essentially Estonia. shut down? Estonia. Estonia. They yeah. shut down Estonia. They did what they did in Ukraine. They were meddling in in I think French politics in Western European elections. Brexit uh, mm-hmm. and, and Brexit as well. So, is it another kind of failure of imagination like nine like we used to say about nine eleven? How is it that people didn't make the leap to understand that we were vulnerable? to this very form of attack? It's a good question. And I mean, again, what we saw in 2014 and 2015 was in local languages. It was in Russian and Ukrainian, et cetera. I personally didn't see it Actually, crossing the Atlantic. Actually, I think your, your colleague, uh, Tori Newland, uh, yeah. who we had on this podcast, right. was a very early uh, victim of, <laughs> well, uh, of, of the, this kind of Russian disinformation. Right. Yes. Yeah. But that is a, a, kind of the harder end of cyber warfare, where, I mean, her conversation with Jeff Pyatt, who we were just talking that's about, right. was yeah. stolen. And that's where she said, I don't even know if I'm allowed to say the words on it. I guess you yes, can. you can. You she can say said, anything on this She show. said, fuck the EU to right, Jeff on right, the phone. Yeah. And that was the thing that got leaked. And of course, you know, everyone had to apologize. So, I mean, yes, we were aware of what the Russians were doing. But again, as I say in the book, I mean, that you know, I, the subhead is how we lost the global information right. war. We kind of missed the the idea that everything they did there was a kind of trial run or a template for what they did here. But I also think they didn't realize that either. They didn't do what they did in 2014 and 2015 because, hey, we want this is the farm team for when we go into the 2016 presidential election. And frankly, the, the antecedent for that, to me, is much more Putin feeling like Secretary Hillary Clinton meddled in the Russian elections in 2011 and 2012, and I want to meddle in the in the U.S. election, um, I think the Russians, as as you know, are not. I don't think they're chess players. They're checkers players. They try things out. When things work, they do more right. of it. When they don't work, they do less of it. And that's sort of what happened when it morphed into the 2016 space. And as I, as I say in the book, 
in the beginning of, of Donald Trump's candidacy, the first couple of months, the Russians were making fun of them of him just like people yeah. in the American media were. Mm. I mean, uh, mm. Russia Today wasn't supportive of him, and they had jokes about right. his hairstyle and stuff. And what happened, though, was as he started getting, you know, doing better in the primaries, and as he would say this Russian line about let's be friends with Russia and how much he admires Putin, that Russian media started shifting. And that was opportunistic also. It's like, holy sh shit, we yeah. got this guy here now who seems to be parroting our line. Let's support him. So, again, I don't think it was a strategic decision that was made high up, like, you know, early on, Donald Trump is our guy. It was an opportunistic thing. It seemed to me, as far as the question of how the government missed this, that it was, it was in this area that sort of fell between the cracks of various agencies. The CIA, you know, would monitor what people were doing overseas. But since these were, you know, social media attacks inside the United States, it's not our lane. It's not our thing. You know, the FBI it wasn't a clear crime. So it wasn't necessarily, you know, something that got their attention. It seems like the biggest, you know, one of the biggest components of the Russian operation was something that that nobody focused on. Well, but again, the not that it's an excuse, but remember, they were posing as Americans. Americans right. They were tweeting in English. Um, they, you know, did anybody know in the beginning that Tennessee GOP wasn't a bunch of Republican women, but, uh, you know, <laughs> people in a troll factory yeah. in St. Petersburg? I mean, that's partially why it's successful. We weren't suspicious of it. And in fact, you know, one of the things I saw, too, was they're not everyone thinks, well, this was so sophisticated. Well, it's not that sophisticated. I mean, these were people who weren't eloquent in English, who their stuff they tweeted was grammatically wrong and 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 had spelling errors. And somebody said to me, you know, those emails you get from the Nigerian prince who's asking you for twenty thousand dollars so he can. And, you know, they're filled with spelling errors and grammatical mistakes. I said, yeah. And this marketing guy said to me, you know, that's deliberate. I said, what are you talking about? He said, because if you answer that email with all the spelling errors and the grammatical errors, they know they've got a live wire and they can manipulate you. <laughs> That's a little the way the Russians operated, too. It's like you look at that stuff back. You go back on yeah. Twitter and look at it. It's like it's lame. So all the, the names that I was called by all these people, I mean, they can't spell motherfucker, even though they called that, me that, you know, a hundred times. So but the people who are susceptible to it were not people who would care about those things. So so if a person is willing to believe that Hillary Clinton was running a child sex trafficking ring out of a pizza parlor in Washington, they're not going to care about grammatical mistakes or spelling errors. I, I should point out that 10 underscore GOP, that was the Twitter handle that was created by the Russian trolls in St. Petersburg, was retweeted by Kellyanne Conway, Donald Trump Jr., Brad Porskell. So even though you're saying some of this stuff was crude and, yes, you know, only for suckers, they found suckers in the, yes, at the highest levels of the Trump campaign. Because they believed in it. Now, by the way, Donald Trump last night retweeted a guy, a Sputnik talk show host, who from really? something he said on Fox. I mean, <laughs> it, you can't believe it. And obviously, a couple of times he held up stories during the campaign that were from Sputnik or Russia Today. Now, do I think that he was deliberately doing that because he knew he wanted to, you know, a trumpet a story from Sputnik? No. But 
they're receptive to it because of confirmation bias. They, they, they want to believe these things so they don't care about the provenance of the information. That's why we have this global information That's war. That's pretty so, astounding yeah. that Trump was retweeting a Sputnik guy. Um, yeah, I <laughs> tweeted about it today. <laughs> the, so, uh, so, Rick, uh, uh, you, know, you, you keep talking about the global battle against disinformation. And over the last uh, couple of years, we've mostly been talking about attacks on our country, our media, our institutions, our democracy from Russia and other countries. But increasingly, it seems like this is a domestic uh, problem, partly because of our president, which we should talk about. But also, uh, you know, there was this uh, study uh, that uh, NYU put out recently um, that said that, uh, you know, they believe that in the coming years, ne- this year, uh, there'll be more domestic disinformation than uh, malign, than dis- uh, disinformation from foreign countries. So to what extent is this a domestic problem now going forward? I think it's a big domestic problem. I mean, you know, people used to say, hey, we invented these platforms and these other people are abusing them. Why can't we stop that? Well, we did invent these platforms, and now we're kind of reinventing how to do disinformation. White supremacist groups, people on the left, as well as people on the right, are are using these platforms. And yes, that NYU study was, was terrific. And one of the things that I'm nervous about, in addition to things like deep fakes, which we also don't have the ability to kind of suss out, is something where there's a kind of overlap between what the ISIS guys used to do that I write about in the book and what the Russians are doing, which is they the Russians will pose as Americans or Trump supporters and solicit help from Americans who don't realize that these are actually Russians who will become kind of, in effect, domestic trolls in support of, of these Russian trolls. I'm, I'm nervous about that. And I, that happened a little bit in 2016. That can happen more now. But I think a lot of the nefarious groups in the U.S., like white supremacist groups, look like, well, wow, the Russians did it. They got away with it. Why can't we can figure this out? We're better at it. And in fact, you know, the other problem is that other countries are looking at that, too. The Chinese and the Iranians, you know, there's no penalty to pay. It's asymmetric warfare. It costs nothing. It's a bunch of bodies in a in a room with, with laptops. So I think it's kind of open season. And we can talk, as you say, about what some of the things to do about it are, but but I think we're going to certainly see a rise in domestic disinformation in 2020. So you talk about an operation that the State Department launched to combat initially ISIS propaganda because the jihadis with ISIS were engaged in extraordinary disinformation and having a real impact, and you set up something called the CSCC. Tell us what that was, what they did, and why it was largely viewed at the end of the day as pretty ineffectual. So CSCC stands for the Center for Strategic Counterterrorism Communications. It took me a few months to, to <laughs> only that. in government. Only in government. Acronyms like my that. wife said, "I know you were fully in government when I would overhear your phone calls, and they were entirely in acronyms." <laughs> acronyms, yeah. So CSCC, ironically, was set up by Hillary Clinton. And it was set up to combat this new and dangerous organization that was using the Internet in a way we'd never seen before called Al-Qaeda <laughs> yeah. because they sat a guy on a hillside in Pakistan and talked directly to a camera and then loaded it up to YouTube. But what happened when CSCC, before anybody, saw the rise of ISIS and also saw how potent they were on social media. And, you know, the thing that I came to in government, and, and, and I think CSCC is super well-intentioned, 
and people who really cared about what they were doing. We had lots of Arabic speakers and people who understood the history of Islam. The problem is, is that government is not the best messenger for the message that yeah. it has to get out there because, in fact, people think the message is polluted because it comes from government and because right. the federal law, we are not allowed, the State Department is not allowed to talk to domestic audiences. You need to talk to international audiences. So most of these people, they'd see you know, U.S. State Department on something and they would believe that it was propaganda or disinformation itself. So you know, I joke that in government, when you see something you don't like, if you put the word counter in front, in front of it, you think you're doing something about it. So like counterterrorism, like, you know, we did counter, you know, counter, counter ISIS messaging. In fact, I don't really think it was very successful. But the things that we did do that I thought you were kind of pointing towards mm -hmm. is we did work with Facebook and Google to figure out how is there a better way to do this? And this is now it was once uh, classified information. It's now not classified any information. So Google Ideas, they changed their name, but they had something called the redirect method, which you can read about. Terrific person um, named Yasmin Green seemed to let it. And what that was is when someone went on YouTube and said, how do I pledge allegiance to al-Baghdadi? That person was then served, that right rail of ads were actually ads that were created to dissuade people from joining ISIS. Like, yo, you're going to get killed. Baghdadi's a bad guy. Well, that actually works. And, and to me, the one of the potentials is how do you use technology for good stuff? I mean, you can do that in a positive way, like, you know, where do I vote? You know, which candidate is best on the environment? And you can, you can get served that information. So, so there were different techniques that we worked on and used that, that, were, that I thought had, had a little more purchase but than I, just countering it. But, uh, but as I recall during that period, the government had a lot of problems with the social media platforms trying to persuade them to do more content moderation. That, that, in, that Twitter, I remember in particular, because I remember talking to people at the NSC about this, and it goes to the point of how our enemies were always able to use sort of a kind of jiu-jitsu strategy. They were able to use the good things about America, our openness, yes. um, against us. And so you must have had interaction. Did you? Was that part of your job as well to interact with the social media platforms? Yes. Yeah, so we. So one of the scenes I write about in the book is this sort of famous meeting where we all went out to Silicon Valley and met with the heads of you know Apple and Google and YouTube and went with the whole uh, White House varsity team. And the truth is, and I say this in the book, the, those platforms, Facebook in particular, were very good on the, on the countering ISIS or Islamic extremist messaging. They, they needed help. They didn't have a million Arab speakers, but they saw that this was the kind of content that should be taken down. Obviously, content in their rules, in their terms of service, in their constitution, content that promotes violence or leads directly to violence can be taken down. They got pretty good at it. I mean, I remember in the beginning when I was in the State Department watching ISIS videos on YouTube, and then by the time I left, they were they were gone and sometimes mm -hmm. under a minute. Mm -hmm. So I really thought the platforms did a great job there. But in a weird way, that kind of content was a little like as this child pornography, where the actual image is the crime, so they could take it down. The problem with the Russian stuff is Oh, I, we didn't even know they were Russians. And, and so I remember when I went out there, and that was probably 2015, I don't even think we talked about Russian disinformation. Then it was all you know, completely focused on, on the ISIS stuff. Mm -hmm. 
Speaking of ISIS, very much in the news right now because Trump has given the green light to Erdogan in Turkey to um, invade Syria to clean out the SDF, which is the Syrian Defense Forces we've been supporting to fight ISIS. You were, you know, on the front lines of at least the information war with ISIS. Uh, how damaging do you think this Turkish invasion and the president's apparent green light for it is? Super damaging. And, you know, when President Trump said, I want to end all of these endless wars in the Middle East, well, he just extended this war by probably two or three decades. I mean, really? Oh, yeah. I mean, because now it's it's a kind of wild open season, right? So the Turks and the Kurds will sort of go to war. The Russians will come in on the side of the Turks. You know, Assad basically won his civil war there on the other side. The Iranians will continue to back Assad. I mean, it's just like, to me, this is like, this just pushed it down the road another five or 10 years. Again, not that the thousand U.S. military special operations forces that were there was going to solve it, but when there are U.S. troops in a particular place, everybody takes a lot more care about what they do. And when Americans are gone, it's like they, they start bombing. In fact, one of the arguments I make in the book that I don't, you know, hear picked up enough is I argue that Putin's indiscriminate bombing in the Syrian war when, they, when he went in in 2015 and 16 was deliberate to create more Syrian refugees to go through Turkey into Europe. And then using disinformation, he weaponized immigration in Germany and these con- and countries, and then that mm-hmm. bled over into the U.S. I tell the story of the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, uh, the Russian government supporting the disinformation about this Russian girl in Germany who was allegedly yep. raped by uh, mm-hmm. Syrian refugees. I mean, not only did the IRA support that, you know, the Russian foreign minister talked about it within 15 minutes. I mean, they were weaponizing immigration in these places. They wanted to destabilize Germany, which they've always wanted to do. They wanted to make Mrs. Merkel mm-hmm. leave office. And, and, they, and they did that with all of these phony stories about crimes committed by uh, refugees and immigrants in Germany. It seems like the greatest threat here is that all those, what is it, 11,000 ISIS fighters who are being jailed by the uh, SDF, mm-hmm. uh, the threat that they will be you know, that they will escape now and go back into the world and go back into committing terrorist acts against us and others. Absolutely. I think that's a that's the most immediate threat. The Syrian defense force, some Syrian democratic forces were the Mm -hmm. ones holding them. And when Trump says we're holding thousands of ISIS prisoners, we're not holding them. These guys that we're supporting, the Kurds are are holding them, you know, in a and not in a maximum security prison, you know, in a in the middle of nowhere in in northeastern Syria. So absolutely, these guys could scurry back out and then start committing terrorist acts in Europe. I mean, it's a really dangerous situation, which is why what Trump did is so reckless, right? I mean, it's just like it was a phone call from Erdogan, and then the consequences will go on for years and years and years. So, Rick, we're talking about this in terms of the global battle. But it seems to me that in a real way, we are all involved in these information wars on a kind of a daily basis. You know, journalists, voters, Americans who have benefited from our institutions and our democracy. And there was forever, we seem to rely on a 
fairly common set of facts. Um, we, I think, all here remember when there was the, the three news magazines, a handful of big newspapers, and the three networks. That's all gone. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the prescriptive element in here, it seems like a Sisyphean struggle. How do we actually do something about this Well, so one, forward? I'm going to uh, piggyback right on your question, Dan, and talk about media for a second, and then talk about legislation. So, so yes, I mean, one of the things that surprised me when I went into government, and again, we've all been ink-stained wretches for our whole lives, was how little understanding people in government had about the way media operates, much less regular folks out there that we right. used to create content for. Like, I don't, you know, people, oh, you check those things, and, you know, you have people on the record. I mean, so I so one of the things I started saying was we don't have a fake news problem. We have a media literacy problem. And part of it is that we just haven't taught media literacy. And we just sort of assumed that people understood it. But even through reading a lot of journalism, you don't necessarily understand it. So I think we need to teach media literacy. That's a long-term solution. I think you say that it ought to be a staple of our secondary education. Absolutely. Ought to just, uh, Absolutely. And, and, and civics, too, which we also realize yeah. we've, we st we've stopped teaching and, and now we're paying the consequences. But I also have a proposal about journalism has to become more transparent. Like in the digital realm, right, I would say let, open up the kimono, open up everything. You know, Here's the story. Here's a link to all the interviews I did on the record, off the record. Here's a link to, uh, to the different pictures. Here's a link to the fact-checking. Here's a link to the primary and secondary sources I did. I mean, it would create, create a lot more work. And would everybody read that? No. But people would understand how a story is put together and how, how it's fact-checked and lawyers read it. I mean, it bothers me that people don't understand that. The legislative solution that I talk about is, okay, so... The way the social media companies work is it's third-party content, and they say they're not publishers. And in fact, the law that helped do them do this, the Communications Decency Act, Section 230, 1996, long before Facebook even, was basically saying you have immunity from liability for what you publish because it's third-party content. It's not created by journalists. And your argument is these platforms are publishers. They are the biggest publishers in the history of the world by a gigantic margin. Now, they're not publishing professionally created content, but they're creating content. They're publishers. And can they be held liable the way Newsweek once upon a time was or Time was? No, because it's vaster and it's created by third-party. But they need to be liable for, you know, hate speech and dangerous speech and speech that promotes violence and demonstrably false content, which I really think, you know, that's that's the one of the problems of the story we saw about Facebook the other day, basically saying, well, we're not taking down an ad, a Trump ad that had demonstrably false content because it's political speech. Well, I agree that political speech needs but to be- But CNN just did that. CNN they just did. said they would not because they, they adhere to sort of some traditional- values that we all did in journalism. And so they but said one they wouldn't. of the reasons that Facebook does that in the other platforms is because if they do take it down, people go, aha, well, you're an editor. You're a publisher. Right. They don't want to do that kind of stuff because they don't want congressmen to say, hey, you're a publisher. We need to regulate you like a publisher. Well, right. they do need to be regulated. And they like say a if you if you repeal Section 230, that would effectively be the end of the Internet. Well, and I'm not even proposing a radical thing. I'm pr proposing a sort of moderate thing that that the 
it should say these companies have to make a good faith effort to take off the following types of content, including demonstrably but false content. But you're saying that Facebook needs to be regulated to ensure that they do monitor and censure political speech that's false. How is Do you want the government in the business of telling Facebook what it should take down and keep up? I don't. And the First Amendment basically applies not to private companies, but but the government. And the government well, does apply to everybody for the first. It amendment. does apply to yeah. everybody. But the Facebook is not violating the First Amendment if they say we're going to take down all content that talks about blue turtles in the Pacific Ocean for X and Y reason. Well, that's not that's not protected speech. They have their own constitution. It's called a terms of service agreement. Right. Right. It's not, you know, Remember the first four words of the of the First Amendment are Congress shall make no law, right? Mm-hmm. But that doesn't say Facebook shall make no law. They can do that. And so I don't think they have to edit every piece of third party content like mm-hmm. the way we used to. In fact, that they'd have to grow exponentially larger in terms of the number of people they employ. But they have to have some rules about this content that's actually stricter than they have now, and they have to take a little bit more of an editorial role and and be honest about it. Like, yes, we're taking down this content because it's abs- it's false. So, like, the fact that they didn't take down the, uh, the Nancy Pelosi video. Right. They put a warning label on it. I mean, that's fine, but that... That's depending on other people to make that judgment. That's sort of a more government attitude about speech than what a private company should do. Right. Last question about Trump, because we didn't really talk much about him. I'm curious, do you think that, that Trump, who is you know, the conspiracy theorist in chief in a lot of ways, um, is an expression, simply an expression of this, of, of this time um, and that there will be more presidents who use information the way he does? Or do you think there's something unique about Trump? And and in your answer, tell the anecdote about the lunch you had with Trump that you have in the book, which I thought was kind of funny. I hope Trump isn't a precedent for other presidents, certainly in terms of disinformation. I think he probably is a precedent in terms of how much we want the president involved in our day-to-day life. I mean, you know, for Barack Obama to send a tweet, you know, when he was president, it was, you know, probably like was cleared by a hundred different people <laughs> and it was, you know, so careful about it. And and so I think presidents will be more present in our lives, which isn't a terrible thing either. I think he's an outlier in terms of the being a dis, the disinformationist in chief or the conspiracy theorist, theorist in chief. I mean, it's just a crazy stuff. So he's both a symptom of this, but also a cause. He's like a cheerleader for mm-hmm. for uh, mm-hmm. disinformation. And your lunch with Trump. I, yeah, yeah. So it was a dinner actually, and okay. and um, you know I'd never met him before. I've never met him since. You know I. I this is what year? I'm not. Yeah, this yeah. would have been um, 1991. Right. I think before mm-hmm. I went to South Africa to work with Nelson but Mandela. You were at Time. Or? I was at Time, yeah. but I was a you know I was a low level writer, and um, you know it was just it was kind of stunning to me because I, I I was taken aback by someone I'd never met before and how incredibly vulgar he was about you know and talking about people's affairs and sexual things and it was like whoa I I, I was really stunned by that and. Um, Interesting. Well, right now he's a creature of Twitter, but back then he was a creature of page six. 
right? Yes. In a lot of I mean, this was the guy, as you know, who used to call it Page Six, pretending to be his what own was that name publicist. He used? John Barron. John Barron. And then he yeah. named his son after his fake publicist <laughs> that he pretended to be. Um, oh, I think you, you uh, do make the point that the idea that he might someday be president seemed uh, far fetched. <laughs> about as far fetched <laughs> as you could imagine. Right. I mean, yeah. that, I mean, we people in New York saw him for what he was, which is this carnival barker, you know, fake. Yeah. He was the original fake news guy, and um, and I guess I guess one of the things when I look back, I think, well, maybe that's the reason that a lot of media, which is based in New York, didn't kind of come to terms with the with the viability of his candidacy because everybody thought he was a joke that he, you know he wasn't a news story he was a punchline and because I don't know I kept waiting when is when are these exposés about his business going to come out in 2016 and and we just kept waiting and waiting I mean they've come well, out they, since. They, there was a lot written it just it just didn't break through people didn't really care I mean there were, there were reams of stories that we all wrote about uh, you know Trump's bankruptcies and you know his failed business ventures around the world and the, all the lawsuits that engendered Trump University how many stories on Trump University did I write but the, did it matter? Did it, you know, register yeah. with the electorate? Well, you know, to quote Pat Moynihan, I mean, he sort of defined deviancy downward, right? I mean, that, you know, when that line about I could t- shoot somebody in Fifth Avenue and no one would care, it's just like we know so much terrible stuff about him. Each thing is just an incremental difference rather than something that would be, strike at his heart. Mm-hmm. So. And in any case, uh, Richard Stengel, it's a great book, Information Wars. There's a lot we didn't have a chance to cover, particularly, I mean, you know, my favorite passages are about being a journalist working in the government and government yeah. bureaucracy. There's some delicious anecdotes in it. Thanks for joining us on Skullduggery. It was a pleasure, and I'm glad we didn't get to talk about all that bureaucracy <laughs> stuff. We are now joined by James Stewart, the esteemed columnist for The New York Times and author of the new book, Deep State, Trump, the FBI and the Rule of Law. James, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you. Good to be here. So the deep state is a concept that we're hearing a lot these days as the uh, Trump impeachment momentum accelerates. What is the deep state? Well, you're, you know, you're right. The, the concept of the deep state has now been weaponized by the Trump team, but it really began as a phrase that described the sort of entrenched uh, military, industrial, political bureaucracies in countries like Turkey, Egypt, that from time to time had democratic governments, sometimes they had dictators, but this sort of career bureaucrat at times would step in it was all about preserving their own power, their own prerogatives, their own wealth. And from time to time, they would overthrow whatever government happened to be there while they continued on their merry ways. And so that became – that was the initial idea of the deep state. So it seemed – look, from the perspective of Trump and the White House, the concept seems to be playing out as we speak. Uh, the whistleblower – who first brought to the world's attention uh, Trump's phone call with the Ukrainian president, was a CIA analyst detailed to the National Security Council. He's 
triggers the entire controversy by filing this complaint. Uh, and as you know, the first response from the White House, Stephen Miller, is he's a deep state operative. So from you know one perspective, Trump is being ensnared by the deep state right now. Well, you're right. The, the deep state has been transferred to America as a highly pejorative term, I think partly because it has these vaguely sinister origins in the Middle Eastern countries, Egypt, and that certainly appeals to the nativist Trump hardcore, that this is like some weirdly foreign slash, you know, Muslim sort of concept that has crept its way into America. It's a completely inapt analogy in many ways because, first of all, what they're calling the deep state is the career political bureaucracy, which is, is not political in, in the United States. We have a system of checks and balances. The administrative agencies, the law enforcement agencies in the United States, as part of those checks, have considerable independence. They have their own legislatively defined powers, and it is their obligation they, they take an oath to protect the Constitution. They work for the people of the United States. They do not work for the White House. We do not have a dictatorship. But you say it's not political. But, you know, look from again, from the uh, Trump bunker perspective, what we know about the whistleblower is not just that he was a registered Democrat, but now it's been reported that he had some professional relationship with one of the Democratic presidential candidates. That certainly feeds the idea that many of these people in this embedded bureaucracy do have political motivations. In fact, we'll get to that when we right. talk about your book. But um, yeah, you can see how from their perspective, you know, this is a political operation. Well, in some sense, everything is political. But let's, let's face it, everyone has political views of some kind. The federal bureaucracy is populated with a vast number of people you know, I don't know how it breaks down between Democrats and Republicans, but certainly within some of the agencies most vigorously attacked, the Justice Department and the FBI, there are plenty of Republicans. There are some ardent Republicans. There are Trump supporters in there, as well as people, of course, who oppose him. The question is not that people have political views. Of course they do. Do they allow those political views to influence the exercise of their professional duties? And over and over again, while Trump has been accusing people of behaving in a partisan way, various investigations, including mine, have failed to uncover evidence that he has cited where they're actually behaving in a partisan way. And I can give you many examples of that. Well, there were certainly times when Hillary Clinton could have argued that there was a deep state inside the FBI and the Justice Department that was out to get her. And you go into... In fact, the Clinton people were arguing that they just all during the 2016 they election. Well, they didn't use the phrase deep state, however. Yeah. Uh, so that's <laughs> they the didn't. distinction. They and by the way... go that far. How did that term... How was that transferred to this particular moment? Yeah, that's, that's a good point because the, the, the concept of the deep state really took, took off in the U.S. in 2014 when Bill Moyers did an interview with the author Mike Lofgren, who, by the way, was a a Republican. And he kind of explored the deep state as a um, worrisome power center that was a counterweight to the democratic process in the U.S. But what he was talking about was really a variation on the old military industrial complex. His main concern in talking about the deep state was 
Wall Street and Goldman Sachs and the big, you know, the big law firms working and lobbyists working for major corporations, the big, I assume he would say now, the giant tech companies. That's what he saw as the deep state, not the federal bureaucracy and the law enforcement agencies. That got then taken up by the Trump crowd, as I said, given the sinister connotation and then weaponized and aimed most recently at the FBI. The Justice Department is now extended to the CIA. And of course, it's being used on the whistleblower now. But that is a completely different idea from Lofgren's point of view, because he wrote another essay. Trump is, is he stocked his cabinet with card-carrying members of the deep state. I mean, look at the people from Goldman Sachs he had in his administration. You know what uh, struck me? You've got a a quote in your book from Steve Bannon saying uh, the the deep state conspiracy theory is for nutcases. America isn't Turkey or Egypt. There is a entrenched bureaucracy, but, quote, there's nothing deep about it, which really struck me because my perception is Bannon did as much as anybody um, when he was at Breitbart and then when he was at the Trump campaign and the White House to promote the idea of a deep state. Oh, uh, I don't think that's correct. Um, uh, I was... Breitbart did not uh, write multiple. Oh, Breit... well, he was the head of Breitbart. He was running it. Well, Breitbart now is run off and running with the deep state concept, but I don't I don't think it has Bannon's fingerprints on it. I mean, at least I, I talked to him. I was somewhat surprised. He was really he was really eager to go on the record and denounce this idea and said he told Trump several times that this was a, a ridiculous analogy and he shouldn't be using it. You know, I will say this about Bannon, as I discovered in working on this book. You can, you know, he has some wild ideas. He's a populist. He has, you know, you can, he's very controversial. But he was, by comparison to what's there now, kind of a voice of reason in the White House. Many times <laughs> he told Trump not yeah. to do things that, frankly, he was right. I mean, he helped keep Trump in bounds. Well, and going back to the central narrative, one of the central narratives of your, of your book, which is the firing of James Comey, I think right. you quote Bannon as saying that was, you know, maybe the biggest political mistake not just in his term, not just in American history, but in history. Yes, I know. That was maybe a little hyperbolic. But, <laughs> well, thank but Bannon was hyperbolic. Uh, uh, but Bannon was apoplectic by that. Now, Trump didn't consult Bannon ahead of that decision. If he had, he would have gotten an earful. Maybe he knew that Trump, that Bannon would have tried to stop him. But Bannon was beside himself when he went ahead and did that. After talking to Stephen Miller mm-hmm, and, right. and Jared Kushner. So walk us through. I mean, the book is a, a sort of fascinating chronology of how we got to where we are and those tensions within the Justice Department and the FBI over how to handle a president who's you know, violating every norm uh, known to law enforcement, at least since uh, the days of Watergate. And a guy who really uh, leaps out in your accounting is the role of Rod Rosenstein, deeply right. conflicted, then the deputy attorney general who is used by Trump to provide the pretext for the firing of Comey. Tell us about the role of Rosenstein in all this. Well, Rod Rosenstein is absolutely, I think, a, both a central character in the story and kind of a metaphor for what has happened to the balance of powers in the in the federal government. I mean, he stepped in as deputy, deputy attorney general, and then very quickly, because Sessions recused himself, he was in charge of the Russia investigation. And in short order, he was summoned to the White House. Trump says, I've decided I'm firing Comey. What do you think of that? Sessions says, oh, fine. And 
Rosenstein says, yeah, I think he mishandled the Clinton investigation. And Trump kind of lights up and said, oh, will you give me a memo to that effect? So Rosenstein dutifully goes back, writes up a little memo about Comey and the Clintons, sends it back to the White House. And the next day, lo and behold, suddenly the whole rationale for firing Comey has become how he allegedly mishandled the Clinton administration and Rosenstein's memo. And Trump and the, the White House press people are now saying, oh, the Justice Department told him to fire Comey. That was totally false. Secondly, they said the reason was because of the handling of the Clinton administration, also false. And then Trump had people call over and say he wanted Rosenstein to come out and give a press conference and say that he was the one who said fire Comey because of Clinton. And that just completely unnerved Rosenstein, who at the time, again, had a great reputation, independent, a solid prosecutor, career guy. And then been the and longest he, serving U.S. attorney, yes. perhaps in history. Yeah, he survived the, the firings of the yeah, U.S. attorneys. Yeah. But Rosenstein refused to give that press conference. Yes, he, he refused would not to do come it. out and say that uh, it had been his idea to fire. No, and, and good for him. He had the backbone to do that. But he paid the price. And then that following week, again, to me, some of the most dramatic material in the book, you just watch Rosenstein kind of coming unhinged. I mean, I don't think there was anything in his background that prepared him for, as you say, a White House that was so untethered from norm, standard norms of behavior or concerns of, of obeying the law. So he comes up, he's, you know, he's kind of falling apart, and there are many eyewitnesses to this. He talks about w- wearing a wire in the White House, gathering information yeah. twice, two occasions, and there were notes taken the now, second he time. he said he was joking. He said he was joking about right. that. No one I spoke to believes that. That was an ex so post you, facto. You, you described an extraordinary meeting with McCabe, with who was then the right. uh, the acting FBI director, uh, Comey having been fired, meeting between McCabe and Rosenstein, in which uh, Rosenstein brings up, I think he brings up the 25th Amendment in that meeting, or if not in that meeting, he had already brought it up. Yeah, it, yes. He brings up the possibility of wearing a wire in the White House. He says that people... Uh, who have security clearances, don't get searched. McCabe kind of like can't believe what he's hearing. But what I thought was really striking, um, and you were talking about about how Rosenstein is kind of falling apart, is that at least in McCabe's telling, he is kind of welling up. He's almost he's almost crying. He's so right. in such a state. So what what was going on with Rosenstein at that point? Well, in, in, this, in this first meeting where he summoned McCabe uh, to the Justice Department, this is when I think he first, it was hitting him how bad things were. And he says, and I think this is extraordinary, he says to McCabe, I don't mean to laugh about it because it's serious, but he was he was very somber and he said, you know, there's nobody I can talk to here. There's nobody I can trust, i.e. he can't trust the White House, he can't trust Sessions. There is no one he can turn to. He says, the one person I'd like to talk to is Jim Comey. Now, he had a history of respect for him. He invited him to speak. He'd extolled his virtues in the past. But <laughs> McCabe was speechless because he had just basically helped fire Comey. And now he says he wants to talk to him? And by the way, they did go back to the FBI and think, well, is that a good idea? Should we put Comey in touch with him? And they decided no, because Comey now is not in the government. Comey has no business talking about sensitive subject with the deputy attorney general. So that was one meeting. The next meeting is when he's really, you know, in that first meeting, McCabe is saying, are you okay? And he says, no. And are you sleeping? No. Is your family okay? No. His world is falling apart. So the next meeting, he hasn't had any sleep. He's, you know, stewing over this. This is when he's really starting to fall apart. He's flailing. He's disjointed. He brings up the wire. He brings up the 25th Amendment. 
he has to go in the bathroom to compose himself. And then there's a third meeting where there is a larger crowd present. He brings up the wire again. You know, he kind of rambles. Everyone's worried that, you know, he's having some kind of breakdown or something and worried that they're, you know, he could trigger some kind of constitutional crisis here. But he clearly wasn't acting alone. I mean, again, I think one of the key things in the book is he must have discussed this already with Sessions and John Kelly because he says both Sessions and Kelly would support invoking the 25th Amendment. Now, needless to say, they've never <laughs> wanted to comment on that, but it looks like he had done a little spade work on that. You know, a lot of people uh, watching current events unfold or thinking about the 25th Amendment again right now, uh, although, you know, as I think we've discussed on the show, it re- would require the participation of, uh, of Vice President Pence to actually yes. remove a president under the 25th Amendment, and that seems at the current well, again, right I now, think unlikely to say the least. Well, kind of a key point to me is, you know, Trump has attacked the FBI as, against, as hostile and against him. But it was the FBI who kind of said, well, wait a minute, this, let's just take a deep breath here. I, you know, we, this is too extreme. We're not going to support that. I mean, they they blocked that time and time again. The FBI took a more restrained approach towards Trump than others were advocating, completely inconsistent with the idea that they were out to get him. I mean, believe me, if the FBI had wanted to destroy Trump, they could easily have done that. Well, I want to get, let's just get back to Rosenstein for just sure. one second, because I, I want to get sort of your bottom line on him, because he's a complicated character who, you know, as we said before, he actually, he, he does in the end appoint a special counsel in Bob Mueller. He refuses to give that press conference that the White House was, was ordering him, him to give. He contemplates uh, ways to remove the president. And yet you come down fairly hard on him. And I think James Comey had the insight, which maybe is where you, what you concluded as well, which is that ultimately he's a survivor. So what is your bottom line on Rosenstein? Yeah, you know, the Comey comment about him being a survivor, I think is very important because he made that comment when he was first appointed. It wasn't after he had time to digest all the things that happened. It was kind of predictive. It turned out to be very accurate. I think in Rosenstein, again, you see what happens. I, I don't question his essentially, you know, patriotism or intention to do the right thing, but th- this is what happens when you get into orbit around Trump, who is untethered for, from the norms of ordinary, uh, ordinary political and legal behavior. You slowly but surely get kind of like sucked into this this vacuum, this sort of moral vacuum, and end up compromising the very principles that you thought you were there to defend. And I, I think what happened, the problem was that, you know, Trump, of course, found out about him, you know, wanting to get rid of him and wear the wire and all that was all reported in the New York Times, parts of it anyway. And there were two occasions when the Justice Department was writing the press release that Trump was firing Rosenstein. Rosenstein meets with him alone. Each time, miraculously, he emerges with his job intact. I would, that's one thing I would love to know that I don't. What did he tell him? Now, Rosenstein didn't talk to me, but people close to him defended him by saying, look, the bottom line is he saved Mueller. He got him over the finish line. But at what price? I mean, he was Mueller's boss. He could have fired Mueller. Trump could have told him to fire Mueller. And there are some conspicuous omissions from the Mueller thing, most of all that Mueller refused to reach a conclusion about whether he broke the law on obstruction. But secondly, wait, 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 what's the omission there? That was Mueller's position. He didn't omit it. He said, I am not going to go through the analysis of whether the president broke the law. I know, because he said you can't indict a sitting president, so it would be unfair. But 
his mission was it was never told don't tell us if a president broke the law because we can't charge him right away. But why are you putting that on Rosenstein? That seems to be what Mueller ended up doing. He didn't have to do it, but that's what he did. But he was talking to Rosenstein. Well, and you're saying that, you know, Mueller uh, abandoned his own principles in order to do what Rod Rosenstein said and then didn't say a word about it? That doesn't seem very likely or very Bob Mueller-like. I'm not I don't know what exactly transpired between Rosenstein and Mueller, but I believe, you know, again, people close to Rosenstein told me that he protected Mueller. He got him over the finish line. And that was his signature accomplishment that we should all be grateful for. And, you know, I can see that point of view. But as I'm saying, I don't know what the price that was paid. I mean, what kind of assurances did Trump get ahead of time? Even Barr, once he was attorney general, met when they when he met with Mueller and Mueller said I'm not going to reach a conclusion on obstruction was was stunned and taken aback cuz right. he thought that was the whole mission that was the whole point of having the independent counsel and by the way that left the decision to Rosenstein and Barr to make. But why aren't you critical of Bob Mueller then? Because he's the I guy am critical that did of Bob it. Mueller. Okay, so I'm, I mean, him right, I'm yeah. criticizing him right now. Okay, good. Because I, it just seems to me to put that on Rosenstein. You know, maybe, but it, it, no, at no, the it end was, of the day, Bob Mueller could have said whatever he wanted to say, and he had an opportunity to testify before Congress. And if he didn't go along with what he was ordered to do, he could have said that, but he didn't. I, look, I I am critical of Mueller. Number one. He was a prosecutor. He was an investigator. He didn't make Trump testify about the key issues in the case. He didn't make him testify about anything that happened once he had become president. He he took those lame written answers and said, oh, we have enough here. Uh, I criticize that, number one. Number two, all the stuff about Rosenstein and the, the events that followed the firing of Comey which to me went right to the state of mind of of Trump and why he did it. He is mysteriously absent from the Mueller report, although I know he knew it. Rosenstein was one of the first people that Mueller interviewed for that. And finally, his refusal to reach a conclusion on the central issue for which he was sent out to do his work, and then his refusal to discuss it in any way, I think was an abdication of the responsibility he accepted when he agreed to become the the special counsel. Let's talk about Comey. Because he's obviously a key character in this in this book, he's a through line of the uh, narrative, and he's a controversial character, Very. and has been for some time. You lay out his handling of the Clinton probe, his very unorthodox decision to come out and give that press conference in which he, after 15 minutes of kind of laying out, in the sense, the case against Hillary Clinton, then announces that his recommendation is not to charge her. Then, of course, we all remember the um, discovery of the laptop that has all those emails that they discovered and his reopening of the investigation. And then in the end, just days before the election, the decision to decline prosecution. You seem to take his side. He was in an extremely difficult uh, position, uh, that there were only bad choices and catastrophic choices, as I think he put it. You don't buy the uh, the criticism of Comey, do you? I generally, I would say, no, I don't. I, I think what what I've really though done in the book, and I've tried to do with this with every character, is show their point of view so readers understand what their thinking was doing. That doesn't necessarily mean I agree with it. I think of those decisions, the one to to kind of take onto his own shoulders the decision to essentially exonerate. Clinton and say there's no case that any prosecutor would bring here is the most controversial. 
that was the one that broke most clearly with precedent, Justice Department precedent, and did lead to a chain of events that no one could have foreseen that had you know some very serious consequences and impact on the election, which was the very thing that he was trying to avoid. I do not question his motive in doing that. He thought he was upholding the integrity of the process. He felt he was doing something that would help the American people have more confidence in the uh, thoroughness and fairness of the investigation. Some people think he was more concerned with upholding his own reputation for probity and integrity uh, and that the Justice Department and the FBI maybe wasn't quite as important to him. I think that it might be a fair criticism. I think it was more that he was trying to uphold the FBI's reputation for independence and fairness. But that was in many ways fused with his own personal reputation since he was leading it. And he has himself acknowledged that, you know, there was there were some ego issues in there. He does, you know, he has that thing on his refrigerator door about the importance of virtue. And, I, you know, some people have said that, you know, he maybe goes if it's possible to be too virtuous, that he's a little too enamored of his own reputation for virtue. But I think these are, you know, these are minor issues. I, if, without benefit of hindsight, it was very striking to me at how much approval he got for that decision at the time. I mean, Hillary wasn't thrilled with the idea that, you know, he criticized Including her Including from behavior. Bill Barr, by the way. Right? Yes, right. Bill yes. Barr. Bill Barr singing the praise of it. But there was yeah. bipartisan praise for that. Well, that was the, the, the initial reaction. That was the initial. But a few days later, you got, like, the op-ed piece uh, by uh, Matt Jamie Miller. Relic and uh, and, and, uh, and Larry Thompson wrote a, uh, a joint letter, yeah. two former deputies attorney generals, one Republican, one Democrat, saying this was a violation of norms of, right. of behavior by the FBI director. Well, and then, the, you know, subsequently the inspector general came down very hard on this decision. But again, I think it was striking that there was very little disagreement within the FBI itself. I mean, some, but then everybody pretty much came around that, yes, this was the right thing to do. Again, I, I, another key fact here that I think is so fascinating, if Bill Clinton hadn't barged onto Loretta Lynch's plane on the tarmac in Phoenix, <laughs> I'm not sure. I mean, that wasn't the only reason Comey did this, but that really sealed yeah that decision. And I have and, to say, you have a great reconstruction of that. Yeah. But, but I want to ask you about three other people who you're pretty sympathetic to, and I think you're going to get some pushback on it. One is Andrew McCabe. Mm-hmm. Um, you you know, give a very generous account of how, of how he misrepresented uh, his own role in authorizing um, FBI officials to confirm to the Wall Street Journal a ongoing investigation into the Clinton Foundation. Now, now, you know, he's been criticized by the inspector general. They referred it for criminal prosecution. Whether he gets indicted or not, we don't know. But you kind of take his side in all this and said it was a busy time. He didn't realize what they were saying, even though there were, I think, four separate occasions when the inspector general said he lied and misrepresented the facts. If you're running the agency, the FBI, that prosecutes people for lying to the FBI, How can you stay in the position that you're in when the Justice Department's inspector general says you lied to them? Well, I I don't necessarily agree with your characterization that I'm so uh, gentle on McCain or whatever. I mean, it's laid out right there. I show him, you know, giving false statements, you know, over and over again. And yes, I put it in context. I mean, he lied on... um, May 9th, which was the day that Comey was fired. I mean, there was that was the day he suddenly became the, the head of the FBI. There was a lot going on. He lies in a situation where he gets called over about the page struck text 
suddenly they veer off and start asking me about the Wall Street Journal thing. It was an intensely high-pressure thing. Does that excuse it? I'm not saying it does. I'm just saying these, these are fired? the facts. Should he have been fired? Well, he was fired. Yeah. And um, yeah. I, I don't – maybe. I, I don't – Right. Disagree with that decision. You could have cl- cleaned up those interviews. I think there's precedent but, for you're interviewed and then you come back and you say, actually, I. Well, he did. Again, I think this is an important yeah. mitigating fact that he did eventually. I mean, it was tardy, but he yeah, did come forward and correct that record and say that he had misstated misstated that. And I think you have to look. I, I think where I would be very sympathetic to him is the idea that this amounts to criminal. A criminal case. Look, right. I'm I've been hard lying on lying under oath. I wrote a whole book about right. lying under oath, and I I do feel that it should be taken seriously. It needs to be prosecuted when appropriate. The, but there are so many precedents of people who, in fact, lied and then corrected the record and then were not given criminal charges. That to single him out for that, I think, would be very problematic and would look like retribution. The other two that I want to talk about, which I think leapt out at me even more, is your treatment of Peter Strzok and Lisa Page. I found it remarkably sympathetic, and particularly when the text messages of what they were saying is released, and you suggest a few of the raw texts taken out of context were incendiary. So I just want to read some of those. Peter Strzok, now this is the FBI guy who's in charge of the investigation into the Trump campaign. Sanders is an idiot like Trump. Struck. Trump's abysmal. Lisa Page, the FBI counsel who he's having a relationship with, God, Trump is a loathsome human being. Struck. Trump's an idiot. Page, he's awful. Uh, God, struck. Hillary should win. Page, Donald Trump is an enormous douche. Uh, Struck. Trump is a disaster. Now, look, If you were being investigated by the FBI with agents with the enormous power to find out everything about you, would you want to be investigated by somebody who's calling you a douche and an idiot? Well, first of all, you say I'm so sympathetic to them. You say these are out of context. What context is there possible for writing that sort of thing when you're conducting an investigation against the very guy you're talking about? Okay, well, I just want to point out, I I put those in my book, so I didn't, I didn't, if I really wanted to spare them, I wouldn't have put them in there. But you said it's, yeah. That's where they, okay, the context is there were like 50, 60,000 texts, and this this is how many, like 12 or something. That's number one. Number two. FBI agents, like every other employee of the federal government, have an absolute constitutional First Amendment right to hold whatever political views they want, no matter how extreme they are. What they cannot do as FBI agents is let those views influence their official actions, number one. Number two, the inspector general and myself, we did – I really looked into this to see did did they ever act in a way that was hostile to Trump or suggested a bias in favor of Trump. On the contrary – Peter Strzok, in particular, was restrained in dealing with Trump. He didn't want to make Trump the subject of the Russia investigation when they named the, the other four. He was very cautious about doing it. It only happened when, after Trump himself fired Comey and then lied about it. The same thing with Lisa Page. They were tougher. They were advocating for tougher measures on the Clinton administration. You know, nobody, yeah. nobody searched anybody's texts for anti 
Hillary statements. Well, but can you imagine if similar texts came out from New York FBI agents who were on the Clinton email case referring to Hillary Clinton in terms like that, what the uproar would be and how there would have been demands across the board for firing those agents right off the bat? Um, you can't fire them. They are absolutely protected. Well, cannot, Strzok was struck. Yeah, was yeah, fired. he was fired, but under very questionable circumstances. Well, I think the, the leadership of the FBI did it, including David Bowditch, who's not a uh, political partisan in any way. He's the new deputy uh, director of the FBI. And I just want to say, uh, Michael Horowitz, who's the inspector general who uncovered all these texts, when he did testify, he was not quite as definitive as you are that there was no evidence of bias. He particularly focused on that period when the Wiener emails were discovered on his laptop and says that they should have gone right away to get those uh, emails and find out what was on them, get the warrant. And Strzok is the one who kind of delayed it. And he thought that might have been an evidence of bias because he was focused on the Trump investigation. Well, that wasn't only Strzok's decision. I mean, you know, as uh, others testified, there were many people involved in that. And it did kind of slip through the cracks. Strzok himself was embroiled deeply in the Russia investigation at that very moment. And I think he has acknowledged that he was so kind of overwhelmed with that, that posed such, that posed in a way much bigger issues than the email investigation, which he thought was largely done, that, you know, you could say he took his eye off the ball, but it wasn't because he was trying to, you know, protect Hillary. And and there were other people who, you know, also just, you know, didn't follow through on that. Uh, and, you know, if they really wanted to protect Hillary, mm-hmm. they never would have done it or made, you know, done it days before the election. Right. Uh, moving forward uh, in the in the Trump narrative here, Trump now faces a very serious impeachment inquiry um, and the likelihood that he's actually going to be impeached by the House of Representatives uh, because of the conversation he had with uh, the president of uh, Ukraine, putting pressure on him to investigate his political rival, um, Joe Biden, and a lot of other things going on around that that raises a lot of serious questions. That impeachment inquiry is now focused on those events, largely not focused on the subject of your book. But in your two years of reporting on Trump and the Russia investigation, what did you learn that informs how people should view what is happening right now in the context of the Ukraine uh, scandal? Well, I think you see in the last paragraphs of the of Deep State, almost, I can't say I, I predicted something like this would happen. But certainly, it's kind of like a chemical reaction where you put all the right uh, you know, elements together, and then there is a predictable outcome. And I think what the, the chemical elements here that are so vivid in, in deep state is, first of all, Trump is extremely impulsive. He does not think through the implications of his decisions. So he's saying, fire Comey, fire Mueller, fire Sessions. Fire Rosenstein. I mean, he had people around him. We mentioned Bannon earlier, but even Corey Lewandowski had enough sense not to carry out an order that he thought consisted of (laughs) obstruction of justice. So he had people telling him, no, you don't do that or refusing to do it. Then he lies about it. The problem with lying about things is not only that the lying is bad, but it suggests a guilty state of mind. It suggests that he then recognizes that what he did was, in fact, wrong, and he's trying to cover it up. And then, then we get into the whole obstruction area. And so it's in a way, it's astonishing, but in, a, in another sense, all too predictable 
that within 24 hours of Mueller testifying, he goes and has this conversation with the president of the Ukraine. The one missing piece in the Russia case was that they didn't have Trump himself actually instigating or, or participating in a conspiracy to affect the election. And he hands that piece to the Democrats on a silver platter. And he has no one around to restrain him. He doesn't have a, a Don McGahn in, in the White House anymore. He doesn't have an attorney general who's going to like stand up to him. You've got an attorney general now rushing out to say, oh, we're, we're not going to let the FBI investigate this because there's no crime. There's no crime, even before they have the facts. So in a sense, this is the natural outgrowth of everything in deep state. Trump came away with, he learned one thing here in, in the deep state events. After two years of turmoil investigation, he said, I was totally exonerated, complete victory for me, I won. And all that did was embolden him to double down on his impulses to interfere. So taking that forward, where it's likely, it's looking increasingly likely, he's going to get impeached, but still the barrier of a Senate controlled by Republicans where you'd need something like, you know, 20 of them to bolt. If the House proceeds, they impeach him, he goes to the Senate, and he is not convicted. Won't that only further embolden the president to do even more outrageous things? Probably. So is that um, a wise move in your view? The impeachment? Yeah. Look, impeachment is a inherently political decision, but there is no question in my mind that, first of all, Mueller, he laid out every element of the crime of obstruction of justice. He didn't say that he broke the law, but he, you know, as a prosecutor, you read the Mueller report. It's all there. If I was the House, I'd put that in to show this ongoing pattern of behavior. And I think it is important that the American people have the facts when they go to vote in 2020. I think it's extremely important for Congress to investigate the Ukraine thing because the FBI isn't going to be allowed to do it. Uh, Trump has succeeded in bringing the independent law enforcement agencies under his thumb. We're not going to get an accounting of what really happened unless Congress uses its powers to investigate. So I think I think they do have a duty to do that, whether, whether the Senate impeaches or not, or whether he succeeds with his ongoing witch hunt, deep, deep, deep state counter campaign, which, by the way, this whole idea of you you change the subject by attacking the people who are prosecuting you is hardly a new idea. I mean, Clinton did a little bit with Monica Lewinsky. More than OJ, a little bit. Vast right-wing conspiracy OJ Hillary Clinton right after the yeah, Lewinsky story I mean, O.J. Simpson did yeah. it. But, you know, yeah. you look through history when this tactic is employed. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. But it is almost always used by people who are guilty of something. If you're innocent, I mean, again, look how Hillary treated the email thing. Uh, you know, she shouldn't have done that with the emails. But nevertheless, she didn't go out campaigning and attacking the prosecutors and saying, oh, this is like this huge cabal. She she did what a, a, an innocent person would do with trust in the system, testify, answer all their questions. I mean, yeah, use all the legal protections you can muster. But she didn't go on a public attack against the prosecutors. From day one, when the Russia thing started, Trump acted like someone who's guilty. So I want to ask you about one of the kind of principal would-be co-conspirators uh, with Trump um, in this uh, Ukraine uh, scandal, and that's Rudy Giuliani. And uh, you have been covering Rudy Giuliani for decades now, because I remember in one of your first book, The Prosecutors, you devote a whole chapter to one of his cases. Did you see the kind of seeds of the kind of 
I mean, I got to say it, instability that we see in him now in his cable appearances um, and what he actually was doing in in Ukraine, running this kind of shadow foreign policy um, and doing uh, Trump's bidding in this uh, crazy Ukraine story. Well, certainly, again, you're absolutely right. I've been, I've been observing Giuliani for decades now. We've, we've clashed on many occasions, and we've you know, gotten along for periods as well. He's a fascinating character. But it, yes, what we see in the Giuliani of today is the Giuliani of yesterday kind of on steroids. That's supercharged. Supercharged. And you know, what was, has been abundantly clear about Giuliani from the earliest days that I met him is, number one, he has a massive ego. One of the things that struck me about his, you know, people used to complain in the U.S. Attorney's Office that he took credit for everything. He got all the publicity. And he would tell the assistants who would be shunted to the sidelines after working for years on a case, nobody will remember this case. But in the future, they'll remember who you worked for. And when you say you worked for Rudy Giuliani, then that's going to make your career. So that's why I'm taking credit for everything. It's really for your benefit. <laughs> they, they were you know, flabbergasted by that. So that's number one. Secondly, he's intensely combative, like Trump. They're very, very similar in that way. Their instinct is to attack. He comes in, you see in deep state, he comes in to help on the Russia investigation, the obstruction case, and all cooperation ends. It's like scorched earth. We're not going to cooperate. Uh, so it's very consistent now. Rudy Giuliani loves the limelight. He loves being on center stage. He loves doing all these cable news shows. And I think the reason that he and Trump teamed up on this Ukraine thing is that he can cloak the whole thing, the attorney-client privilege. No way Giuliani's ever going to go testify about what mm-hmm. happened there. Well, on this note, to uh, close out, uh, as we were speaking, uh, breaking news from the Wall Street Journal, two Giuliani associates who helped him on Ukraine arrested on federal campaign finance charges. Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman are expected to appear in federal court in Virginia later today. Two Soviet-born donors to a pro-Trump fund raising committee who helped Rudy Giuliani's efforts to investigate Democrat Joe Biden were arrested late Wednesday on criminal charges of violating campaign finance the rules. The deep state strikes back. <laughs> <It> does, <yes. laughs> well, well it's, it's, it's utterly fascinating, but also, uh, I'm sorry to say, utterly predictable. James Stewart, thanks for joining us. The book, again, is Deep State, Trump, the FBI, and the Rule of Law. Thank you. Thanks, James. Thanks to former Undersecretary of State for Public Diplomacy and Public Affairs, Richard Stengel, and journalist and author of Deep State, James B. Stewart, for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. Talk to you soon.